Keith sees blinking lights and flickering uh, keynote presentations, and he's like, this is great. <laughs> Just like Uganda, I see it, and I'm like, oh, that's a logistical and administrative nightmare. Uh, so probably yours is more about faith than mine is, uh, brother. I would just say that one of us is pessimistic and the other is optimistic. I don't know. Uh, the Lord's in it, though. Who knows? Maybe the lights will all flicker out. Who needs a microphone? I'm loud enough. We're just going to keep going. Uh, you know, there's nothing digital about the table. So we'll, we'll get through this. We'll be fine. Uh, one other thing I do want to mention without permission, but that's okay. Hopefully, better to ask forgiveness otherwise. Uh, Eli, this is his last Sunday with us for a while, heading to a co-op in Fairmont for over the course of the summer. We're going to be in prayer for Eli as he heads up there, an exciting opportunity for him, uh, but trying to think where do we fit that in smoothly to the gathering and didn't come up with one, so that was my best attempt, but let's just pray real quick for Eli as the Lord leads him in this opportunity. Father, thank you. Uh, not just for him, but how you lead all of our lives. I pray you would bless Eli in this new opportunity, uh, these new relationships. May he be light uh, for your kingdom. Maybe he, may he be salt uh, in the world that you have made in this job. Uh, give him wisdom and success and humility. Um, may he grow in holiness. And may you be glorified in that, we pray. Amen. All right. Have you ever been so uh, just kind of a filled with, with an anxiety uh, or with anxiety of an anticipation for something bad that's, that's going to happen and then it doesn't happen. Kind of that disjointed aspect. And then finally you calm down a little bit. You're like, okay, I guess it's not going to happen. And then it does happen. <laughs> like, it's almost worse because of that, that like, ah, okay. no, okay. And then it, then it does hit you, kind of like tremors before uh, an earthquake hits. Uh, the pause before that. So the night of, of January 24th, 2009, Leanne's pregnant with Elise, and she started feeling contractions and got out a, a spiral-bound notebook, right, notebook paper, if I recall correctly, and started writing down the timing of all her contractions and spacing out. Very diligent. I just went to sleep. There was nothing I could do over the course of that. Uh, I, I knew that there would be work for me to come, uh, the work of just waiting, as a typical father has to do for a while there. Um, but it started, we started get, they started getting more regular, if I recall correctly. And so that Sunday morning, we stayed home, and then we, we went ahead and, and calmly grabbed the bag and headed to the hospital and tried to get checked in. And uh, they checked her, and it was just kind of like, no, you, you need to go back home. Uh, we're, we're, we're not there yet. And it was, what, 10, a week to 10 days late anyway. All of our kids were, were uh, on time, according to the Lord's standards and nobody else's. And then we got, we swung through Burger King, grabbed a meal. It's funny, the things that you remember, got home, and then the contractions really started. And so it's like, thought that it was, oh, is this it? No. And then it was just like, oh, this is it. You know, it's the next morning at like three, four o'clock in the morning, rushing to the hospital and eager and desperate and all those type of things. And, and that type of like, something bad going to happen? Maybe not. And then the worst thing comes is how I feel moving from Genesis chapter 3 into Genesis chapter 4. Please turn there. Genesis chapter 4, right? We've left the garden, like literally, God kicked them out. Uh, they left the garden, the curses have been spoken, and then it's just like, what is going to happen next? 
And so as we come into Genesis chapter 4, we, we see the story of Cain and his brother. We might hold our breath leaving Genesis chapter 3, but as we arrive in Genesis chapter 4, time has passed. It's one of those interesting things about scripture. A lot of time can pass just in the course of a, a period, in the course of a sentence moving from one to the other. Life has moved on for Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. What a nice, happy little family we have here. I mean, of course, these births would have been painful. That was promised, but Eve survived. Uh, and the first time wasn't so bad that they didn't have another. Uh, by Eve's words here, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. It, it seems that she recognizes that God has helped her in getting this first son. And, and even more, uh, I think, what is likely that she's thinking, oh, this one, right? Through your offspring is the promise, right? Your seed will battle the seed of the serpent, right? And will actually conquer that. Well, now, now she's received offspring in Cain. So it might be, and I think it is likely, that she's like, ah, the conqueror of the serpent has arrived in this little boy. This is the promised one. And then she gives uh, birth to another little boy. And as they grow up, they each share in their father Adam's responsibilities. Abel tends to livestock as a shepherd, and Cain works the ground as a farmer. Right? You're over the animals. You're, you need to work the land. And he divides his responsibilities between his sons. Maybe things aren't so bad outside of the garden after all. We can all breathe a little easier. Uh, the two boys grow up. And then we read in verses 3 through 4, In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So even though they are outside of the garden, away from the presence of the Lord, the first family is still able to worship God. Undoubtedly, I think these boys are worshiping as their parents had taught them. We don't know what that instruction looked like, uh, but we know that they knew the Lord, they knew of the Lord, they'd sinned against the Lord, they had hope and faith in the Lord, and so they obviously had instructed their sons in the same path. Each brings an offering to God according to his work. Later in the Old Testament, we read that both animals and crops were acceptable and even required and necessary offerings of the Lord, uh, the things that are supposed to be brought to God. However, something isn't right. Back in verse 4, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So the text is clear regarding God's acceptance of Abel and his, and, and his uh, rejection of Cain in relation to their offerings. But it doesn't tell us how that uh, acceptance or approval and rejection was communicated. In other places, you know, God's approval of an offering is seen visibly by fire coming down from heaven to consume the acceptable offering, like in the story of Elijah. Uh, in other places, God uh, rises up in the fire. I was just talking to one of my girls about the story of, I think it's, it's Samson's parents, right? They offer an offering and the angel's there. The angel rides the fire up. So sometimes fire goes down and sometimes fire goes up. It's always cool pyrotechnics though. Uh, other places though, God just speaks to communicate 
his pleasure or displeasure. Sometimes God blesses those whom he accepts and sends trouble to those that he rejects. We're not sure exactly how God tells them his divine opinion, but they definitely get the message loud and clear. And Cain does not respond well to whatever this rejection was. And he doesn't disguise his feelings either, says in the text. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. Next, in verses 6 and 7, God confronts and warns Cain. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. At first glance, it it is admittedly from this text, it's hard to understand why God had regard for Abel, but not for Cain. Uh, Some have suggested it had to do with the offerings themselves, but as I pointed out, if you look at the types of offerings and sacrifices that were permitted and required by God, there were both crops and animals, so it doesn't have to do with the sacrifice itself. When God speaks to Cain, he doesn't say, I don't want your fruits and vegetables. If you offer an animal, will you not be accepted? That's not what he says. The problem is with Cain, not with Cain's offering. And Hebrews 11.4 reflects on this passage and says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. As always, from beginning to end in the Bible, the only way to be acceptable before God is through faith in him. Always and forever, from creation up through faith becoming sight, that is the only way that we have access to God. Hebrews 2 verses later makes this point very explicit for us. And without faith... It is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those or that he rewards those who seek him. Now, Abel was an example of that faith. Many others were as well. But the point of the difference, acceptance or rejection, came down to their faith. And this applies equally to you as well. Without faith in Christ, it is impossible for you to please God and draw near to him. It's like Abel, just like Cain, just like everyone. And while it looks like both Abel and Cain bring offerings in faith, faith uh, for them meaning uh, based on a relationship of love for God and a trust in God and his promises, we, we know that they did not both come in faith because only Abel is accepted by God. Right? The, the result reveals the problem. God accepts those who come by faith, rejects those who do not come in faith. God rejected Cain, the problem centered in his lack of faith. And Cain's faithlessness continued to reveal itself in his anger toward God and his visible, crestfallen sulkiness. Sometimes when you're upset, you hide it. I don't know if you're hiders. Uh, Big smile, 
an over-the-top happy voice, maybe really boisterous laughter, just faking those type of things. But other times when you're upset, you want everyone to know it. Uh, When we moved into our house here, we upgraded our kitchen cabinets, but it really has caused a very serious problem. Uh, I don't know about you, but in our marriage, we discovered very early on that the clearest way to communicate that you are upset is through the firm closing of cabinet doors in your kitchen. Uh, Maybe not all the way to slamming, you know, got to have a little bit of self-control, but pretty close. And the problem with our kitchen cabinets is that we bought soft-closed doors, and they are so much harder to slam. I mean, nearly impossible. How is she supposed to know that I'm displeased with whatever arbitrary thing my stupid petty flesh is upset about if I can't slam the cabinet drawer shut? Uh, Maybe you yell when you're angry. Maybe you don't. Maybe you slam doors. Maybe you don't. But whatever else you may do, I'm quite certain your family and friends know your angry look, right? Was that Toy Story? Put in your angry eyes. Uh, Cain put on his angry eyes. He was angry and it was obvious. Like in the garden with Adam and Eve, God asks Cain questions in order to draw him in. Why? Are you angry? Why has your face fallen? Why the scowl, Cain? And I think we can imagine Cain's answer. Because you accepted my stupid brother's stupid offering. That's why I'm upset. You rejected me. God, who knows Cain's heart, continues. If you do well, will you not be accepted? I think this comment demonstrates Cain knew what God expected of him, and he purposefully refused. Perhaps he was just going through the motions of offering his crops to God as an empty religious ritual, rather than an expression of faith and love toward the God who had provided for him. But God is never pleased with empty ritual. He never has been, he isn't, and he never will be. He wants the hearts of his worshipers much more than their offerings. And again, that is for us as well. God is not pleased simply by you coming or giving or serving. It's a heart of faith and love toward God. That is what he wants from us. It's it's ourselves revealed in everything else that happens. Next, God warns Cain, and if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. In other words, repent, Cain. Turn from your empty, faithless worship and your baseless anger. Come to me in faith and in love. Otherwise, a danger that you can't even imagine is waiting for you. I don't really like horror movies, uh, but sometimes I like watching them anyway. Uh, and, and I think this warning is like what happens that you, what you might shout at the TV. No, don't go check out that strange sound on your own. Don't enter the house just one more time. The killer is right behind the tree. Or he's right behind the door. He's waiting for you to go back in the house. Run away, you idiot. But they never listen. 
the wording that God uses in warning Cain really echoes, did you notice this? It echoes what he said to Eve in chapter 3, verse 16. Have you made that connection? Where he said this, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The fall has twisted what our natural response should be. We should believe God and trust him. We should submit to his rule and live in a true freedom that is found under his authority. Instead, our new natural response is is to be contrary to God's design. We desire to do the opposite of what God says, and then we're convinced that that's what freedom is. That freedom is outside of the safety of God's rule. And that that freedom from God's commands and freedom to sin, that that's living. But it's not living. That is slavery. Slavery to sin, slavery to our fleshly desires. That war against us, the war against each other, and the war against God. And the broken relationships that God spoke to Eve about are between wives and husbands, but not just between wives and husbands. We are at war with everyone, and we're at war with ourselves, and we're at war with God. So God warns Cain about his own sinful nature. And this warning is so similar to what the Puritan author John Owen would later write, be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. God is presenting Cain with the reality of the war that is ongoing between God's commands and our sinful hearts. Because if you keep a dangerous predator as a pet, you will always be in danger from it. Don't wrestle with lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. Don't let a python give you a hug. Ever. Don't go swimming with a hungry shark. Uh, Don't put just a little bit of poison in your food. Uh, You will not build up an immunity to Iocane powder. (laughs) Even more dangerous than all of these, don't harbor sin. Don't do it. Don't harbor sin. Have we not yet learned that sin lies as it tempts us? It lies. And we believe the lie. We believe the lie. Ooh, I can lust without adultery. I can cheat without stealing. I can numb my soul with entertainment without my faith suffering. I can be angry without murder. And the devastating but true reality is that when we, you, me, not someone else, when you Or I, when we harbor sin in our hearts, any sin is possible. Even the most horrible, depraved expressions of sin. Right? That thing which is like, no, no, I can do this, but I'll never do that. Fool. It's foolish. Cain was foolish and faithless. And because Cain had a faithless heart, he harbored his sin despite God's warning, and it did dominate him. I think think as he made that decision to, to hold on to sin rather than repenting and turning to God, that he then masked it with a hypocrisy until an opportune moment came for him to be able to lash out. Solomon would later write about hypocrisy masking hatred in Proverbs 26. 
Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. That's what I see at the beginning of verse 8 here. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Just like that, his sin escalated from jealousy and anger to murder. And not just the murder of an enemy. So we're not supposed to hate our enemies, not supposed to murder our enemies. He didn't murder an enemy. He murdered his brother. That is one of the most significant parts of this passage. Not just because we recognize the story, but we see that in repetition. You notice that the phrase is repeated seven different times in this passage. His brother, his brother, his brother, your brother, my brother, your brother, your brother. It's like, oh no, I know it's his brother. No, no, no. He murdered his brother. It's supposed to just snap you in the face over and over again that you cannot miss the starkness of this. It's like this warning and then accusing echo follows Cain around. He killed his brother. And just like that, the hopeful note of verse 1 is shattered and smashed into a million pieces. Eve thought that perhaps the promised deliverance was here? No. The promised curse is here. The evil that they longed to know about at that tree was far worse than anyone could have imagined. And her firstborn son is actually revealed to be one of the offspring of the serpent. And we'll come back to that in a minute. In verse 9, the all-knowing Lord returns once more asking a question. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And now the blame shifting of his parents just turns into outright lying. He said, I I do not know. (laughs) Am I my brother's keeper? Verse 10, and the Lord said, what have you done? Same question that he asked Eve in the garden. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. God reveals his knowledge to Cain, accuses him of his sin, and passes judgment on him. Cain receives his own personal intensified curse. The ground became thorny for Adam, but it became like iron for Cain. And he too was driven away from the presence of God and from the presence of his family. And look at verses 13 through 16. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. I think my answer would have been, who cares? You murdered your brother. <laughs> he says, behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But even in this, astoundingly, God extends an utterly undeserved token of grace to Cain. And then the Lord said to him, not so. 
If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain. We don't know what that is. He put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And this satanic, because that's what it is, that's where it comes from, this satanic, sinful pairing of jealousy, bitterness, and brother murder did not stop with Cain. In fact, we can see it traced throughout the Old Testament. Esau versus Jacob. Israel's ten sons versus Joseph. Saul versus David. Absalom versus Amnon. In fact, the pattern continues all the way into the New Testament, which transitions us to our next story, the story of Jesus and his brothers. In Matthew 21, we read of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The crowds cry, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! But that praise won't last long. And Jesus moves to cleanse the temple of the money changers and animal merchants. And of course, the chief priests and the elders who are profiting from this business, they don't like that. So they challenge him regarding the authority that he obviously thinks he has. By what authority are you doing these things? Or I think we could say, well, just who do you think you are to come in here and act like that? And he proceeds to tell them parables centering around rejection, rejection of a disobedient son to a father, rejection of citizens or workers to the owner of a vineyard. And those leaders, they understand that he's talking about them. They're the ones who are disobedient. They're the ones who have angered the king in their disobedience. They're the ones that the judgment of the king will come against. So they want to kill Jesus. Matthew 22 moves us into those same leaders coming and throwing their toughest questions at Jesus. Uh, What about paying taxes? Uh, How do you understand this complex resurrection question? What is the greatest commandment? Jesus answers all of them with the perfect, divine, I'm sure very frustrating wisdom. By the end of that chapter, the tables have turned and Jesus is now stumping them with a difficult question. And then in Matthew 23, Jesus pronounces seven woes or curses on the scribes and the Pharisees who had rejected him. Listen to the last of those starting in verse 29. This is the climax of this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying... If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons, followers of, those who murdered the prophets. Well, fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogue and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. In John 8, 
Jesus makes a similar accusation against these same people, revealing their slavery to sin. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. little jab at Jesus's biography. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, what did Cain do? Lied? Murdered? When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. He is not your father. You are of your father, the devil, one who is a liar, one who is a murderer. The Jewish nation was all from one family, remember? Offspring of Abraham, offspring of Isaac, offspring of Jacob, and so on. They all had the same spiritual father, God. They all had the same earthly father, Abraham, many sons. This means that the, that the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees who opposed Jesus were actually his brothers. They were relatives of his. They were all one family distinct from all the other families of the nations. Yet just like Cain, they lacked faith. They lacked faith, rejecting Jesus as God's Messiah. And they harbored sin the pride of position, authority, and power, and the jealousy coveting over the influence that Jesus had. And so in their anger, they hated him. And just like Jesus had warned about the connection between hatred and murder as an expression of their sinful hatred, they lied about him in their false accusations and then murdered him using the Romans and their crucifixion. Do you see what just happened there in the course of those narratives? Those people who had rejected Jesus, they fulfilled the type or the shadow of wicked Cain. There's a line tracing all the way back from that, a slithery line, all the way back to the the offspring of the serpent, the murderer, the liar, who twisted God's words to kill his image bearers. And twisting God's word and in Cain's heart, right? Latching onto it. Traces all the way through to this, where humanity had an opportunity to kill God. They killed Jesus. They fulfill the type of Cain, and Jesus fulfills the type of righteous Abel. The book of Hebrews is filled with these Old Testament types and shadows being fulfilled in Jesus. And it mentions that briefly in relationship to Abel. 
In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, it says that we, as believers in Christ, that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and we have come to the sprinkled blood, whose blood? Jesus' blood, the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's such an interesting phrase. What, what word can blood speak? Blood can't talk, right? Well, back in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, God told Cain, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And to follow that vivid picture God is giving, the spilled blood of Abel on the ground where he was murdered by his brother, cries out, I was innocent! And my own brother, Cain, he is guilty. Condemn him for his sin. That's what the blood of of innocent or righteous Abel, that's what he cries out. But Jesus' blood, more righteous than just innocent Abel, it doesn't cry out for vengeance against us. The sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word. It doesn't cry out for vengeance. It cries out, I was perfectly righteous, but I offered myself for their guilt. Father, forgive them for their sin. Better word, gracious word, a comforting word from the blood of Christ, greater than the word Abel's blood. Brothers, brothers, brothers. It just pulses out in all these different pieces of the Old Testament. And both in Genesis and in other places, the word brothers is so significant. One other passage regarding Jesus and his brothers, because his brothers are the ones who murdered him. But, but what else does it say about brothers in Hebrews chapter 2? It says that it was fitting that he, Jesus, for whom, and oh, God the Father, I think there actually, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, they all have one source. So there's sons and there's a source of flowing out from. And then it says that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And, and again, the author of Hebrews is just throwing references at, at us like I'm throwing references at you. Behold, I and the children God has given me. Case, right? So, so source, sons, brothers, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. That's us. Since Jesus' brothers were human, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those of his brothers and sisters who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation offer himself as a sin-covering sacrifice for the sins of his people. For Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus became like his brothers in love so he could die for them, for us, 
For we are called here the brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the same Father, and He has adopted us into the same family. And all this is true, even though we too, in our faithless, sin-harboring hatred, would have murdered the innocent Son of God. Right? You look back, be like, oh, Cain, or oh, Adam and Eve, I wouldn't have eaten of the tree. It's not true. You would have. So, oh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have murdered my brother. You don't harbor sin and let your anger and hatred boil? I wouldn't have killed Jesus. Oh, so you fully accept him by faith and everything? No, that's not how sin works. It dominates us. Jesus' brothers killed him. Jesus, the fulfillment of all things good, died for his brothers. The exact opposite of the hatred that Cain expressed is Jesus dying for his brothers. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we are justified by Christ's blood and saved from the wrath of God. And with that truth fresh in our minds, we move on to our final story, which is the story of you and your brothers and sisters. We are a loved people. We are a loved people. We've been loved by God the Father with an eternal, gracious, undeserved, electing and forgiving love. We've been loved by Christ with his selfless, sacrificial, life-giving, sin-atoning love. We've been loved by the Holy Spirit with his calling, regenerating, helping, teaching, and transforming love. And here's the basic truth of all that. We who have been so loved must and will love our fellow brothers and sisters. If we love Jesus, we will love others just like Jesus loved us. Don't get the order mixed up. Okay, what happens first? The thing at the bottom, Jesus loves us. So having been loved by Jesus, we will love Jesus and we will love like Jesus. If we love Jesus, we will love others just like Jesus loves us. Hear John, the apostle of love, write about this to us. 1 John chapter 3. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the... who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Echoes of John 8 there. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he 
laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. If we love Jesus, we will love others just like Jesus loves us. It is not sufficient to not murder one another. I'm grateful that none of you have ever murdered a fellow member of Risen King Church or any other churches that I know about. If there's something, maybe we should talk. That's not sufficient. It's not enough to just not hate one another. It really isn't enough to just put up with one another while staying mildly annoyed. We must love one another. We must seek each other's physical and spiritual good. We ought, you see that in 1 John? We, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And love isn't just good feelings. We can't just love in word or talk with a passing, hey, brother, I love you. Hey, sister, I love you. At our weekly gatherings, we must love in deed, must love in truth. Like John said, we, we ought to give of our possessions in love to help our brothers and sisters in need. And I know most of you, and I, I think that we're all willing and even eager to do that. Maybe we're just waiting. Let's just think about that for a minute, though. If we don't talk to each other, then how will we get to know each other? And at certain times, certain people are willing to share deep needs with strangers. That's not most of us, though, I don't think. I know I'm not that way. So if we don't talk to each other, how will we get to know each other? If we don't know each other, then we won't even know about those needs, let alone be able to meet them. And if we do know each other, and we do seek to meet each other's needs, what eternal spiritual benefit will there be if we don't pray with each other and for each other? Think about that for a second. What good can you actually do on your own? What real, true, lasting good can you accomplish in someone else's life? I was struck by that thought this week. I was driving to see a friend of mine whose wife was dying in the hospital. Paul talks about his feelings of insufficiency. Who am I? Right? Known a little bit of loss, but known enough loss to just be like, there's just nothing. I can't. I could do nothing. That was the answer. How could I comfort him in his hour of deepest grief? I couldn't comfort him, not really. Let's say the right words. But God could help him. God could help him. And I could be an agent or a channel of God's comfort. 2 Corinthians, the God of all comfort, comforts us through others that he has comforted, that that comfort has been received. The Holy Spirit is pleased to work through his people. That's what he does. It's always his work and it's not ours. So we must ask God to work 
We, we pray before that kind of a conversation or any type of a conversation. We pray going into it and we pray with that grieving person, bringing them before God, just declaring our helplessness in that. And then we keep praying for that grieving brother or sister even as we leave. But in all of that, there is a cost to love and it's a cost that I confess I am not quick to pay. But the cost isn't money and the cost isn't possessions. Cost to love is that which may be the most valuable commodity that we have and the most sought-after resource in the market today. Do you know what the most valuable resource on the market is today? It is time, and it is attention. It's the attention economy. They want your seconds, and they want your clicks, and they want your minds, and they want your hearts. And, oh, I hate giving those things up give you money and give you possessions but I don't want to give you my time just confessing my selfish fingers are clutched tight around my seconds and minutes and hours and days but love is impossible without the giving of time and the giving of attention real Christ-like selfless love always requires a sacrifice of time and attention Think of Christ's life and ministry and tell me that he didn't constantly make that sacrifice. When Paul thought about Christ, he wrote this to the Philippians. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If we love Jesus, we will love others just like Jesus loved us. I can think of two application options here. Go, here's number one. Go love everyone like this. It's an admirable, ambitious goal. And like, I think most uh, very admirable, very ambitious goals, it's easily made, uh, it's impossible to track, it's quickly discouraging, and therefore it's easily abandoned. All right, Risen King Church, go love everybody. Okay, how? Right, so that's option one. And if that, if that just lights your fire, then just go do that. There's option two. Look around the building, flip through our membership directory, find one person that you don't know well enough to specifically pray for them. You don't know their story, where they came from, what has happened or is happening in their families, what their most persistent needs are. Maybe you don't even know their name. Our church family is big enough that that happens, but small enough that it shouldn't, right? Not that many of us, we should be able to know each other's names. But sometimes like, oh, what's that name? Maybe you're new, right? I'm not, I'm not casting stones here. It's, it is. It's, we're big enough. It happens. Small enough doesn't need to. We can know each other. Pick that person. Pray that the Lord will help you pick that person. And then start praying for them generically. Just the prayers that we could just pray for anybody. Bible verse prayers. 
and ask God to help you get to know them and ask God to help you love them. And I believe that the Lord will provide those opportunities. If we ask, he'll answer. Maybe you'll run into them in our parking lot. You'll happen to pull in at the same time. Maybe you'll run into them in Walmart's parking lot, not literally. Maybe you'll end up sitting next to each other at the gathering next week. Maybe you'll strategize. I remember strategizing to run into Leanne at lunch hour uh, our junior year. Sometimes strategies work, just saying. Maybe you'll strategize to be in the food line behind them at our next third Sunday fellowship luncheon. Two weeks, third Sunday fellowship luncheon. Don't miss it. Maybe the Lord will provide you with the opportunities that you need to love them. To give them time and give them attention and spend that time in prayer for them and love. We, we have been adopted by God into his family through faith in Christ. So we are truly brothers and sisters in Christ together. So let me ask you the question that Cain flippantly asked God. Risen King Church, are you your brother's or sister's keeper? Let's pray. Father, your love is endless. Our love is not. My love is not. I confess it's my lack of love and seeking to live and shepherd among your people. Please change me to love as you have loved. Thank you that Jesus died for my failures to love. Thank you for forgiveness through Jesus. Please make us a loving people. Amen. Now I have to